Today, rich people want to put their money into things that will produce a good financial return. The point of money is to make more money. This is absurd. This is absurd. The point of money should be to create value for ourselves. Hello, bonjour, gunaidin, guten tag, and welcome to the Crow Matter podcast, a series of conversations about how people connect, engage, and participate in today's hyperspeed world. My name is Severin Matusek. This is episode 27, and today's guest on the show is Yancy Strickler. Yancy is most well known for being a co-founder and former CEO of Kickstarter, the website that made crowdsourcing a thing and enabled tens of thousands of people to get funding for their ideas. Now Yancy wrote a book. It's called This Could Be Our Future and is a manifesto for a more generous world. Yancy argues that Western society has been driven primarily by maximizing self-interest and wealth. For too long, we've neglected other values in life, such as community, purpose, and sustainability. So is there a way out? Yes, Yancy believes so, and proposes a new approach that allows us to build a society that's generous, fair, and ready for the future. Yancy and I met in Lisbon at the Samsung Next podcast studio at Web Summit in early November 2019. We talk about the process of writing the book, his time after Kickstarter, and of course, the book itself, which is sitting on my lap right now, and I really recommend you to read. Here's the Co-Manor podcast with Yancy Strickler. Yancy, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. You wrote a book. Yeah, yeah, I wrote, I wrote a book. Uh, it's called This Could Be Our Future, a Manifesto for a More Generous World. Um, just came out. It's a, it's a book that it's not about Kickstarter, but it sort of builds on the ideas that are at the heart of Kickstarter. Um, so the first half of the book explores how the world became dominated by an idea I call financial maximization, which is the belief that the only correct choice in any decision is whichever option makes the most money. And we think that this is a belief that's been here forever. Um, it's always been this way. But I track the history of that idea, which I say is about 50 years old. And I show how it changed, like why there are so many movie sequels, how it drives gentrification, the growth of chains, how that's what's kept in the U.S. worker pay down for the last 50 years. And then the second half of the book, I introduce my better idea, uh, which is that the opportunity we have is to expand how we think of our self-interest and expand what we think of as value. And to do that, I created a philosophy called bentoism based on the Japanese bento box. So the Japanese bento box is, uh, you know, has four compartments, has a variety of dishes, not too much of any one thing. You eat a bento, you have like a very balanced meal. And the bento also honors the dieting, Japanese dieting philosophy of harahachibu, which says the goal of a meal is to be 80% full. That way you're still hungry for tomorrow. So bentoism is the same idea for our choices and our self-interest. So there's four different spaces. There's the now me of our self-interest, what I want and need right now. This is where 99% of the world is focused on at this moment. This is where like hockey stick graphs live and our desire to be rich lives. So that's the bottom left bento, but the bottom right bento is future me thinking about the older, wiser version of ourselves, the person that we hope to become, the obituary that we hope to earn through our life. The top left corner is now us, thinking of the people that we count on and who count on us, our friends, our families, our coworkers. And finally, the top right is future us, the next generation, our children, everybody else's children. And so every choice we make impacts all of these spaces, now me, future me, now us, future us. 
All those spaces influence every decision we make. But yet today we think that now me is all there is. Okay. And we struggle to think beyond that. So we can't solve the climate crisis because we look for a solution that helps our now me desires. But the climate crisis is a future us problem becoming a now problem. Um, and it's one that requires a near-term sacrifice. But that's not something we currently know how to do. Okay, so there's a lot of there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah, totally, <laughs> in this, uh, totally. Thanks for the for the great introduction. So first of all, you mentioned that in the first part of the book, you trace back the history of that idea, which yeah. you say is 50 years old. Yeah, that's surprising to me because I'm I would I would assume that the idea of like self interest money making uh, or hyper capitalism is older than 50 years. So where is that inflection point 50 years ago where you see this is this yeah where it comes it's from? it's it's a series of steps. Um, Sort of the first key piece was the invention of game theory in the 1940s and 50s. Game theory is the study of, you know, strategic games or conflicts. And game theory was developed during the Cold War by the U.S. Defense Department as a way to strategize what to do when facing the Soviet Union. And what game theory ultimately teaches is that the rational choice is to maximize your self-interest. And it creates all these sorts of scenarios where you're taught how to maximize your self-interest. But this was a new idea. There's a book that uh, the Rand Corporation, which developed it, um, published in 1954, explaining this new theory of rational behavior as maximizing one's self-interest. They wrote this book saying, we think this is an important idea that could influence not just military decisions, but decisions all across life. That was in the 1950s that idea was introduced. And then that entered the world of business in 1970. Um, happened in the U.S. At the time, the U.S. was mired in the Vietnam War, you know, tough time in the country. And this new conversation developed saying families are sacrificing, people are sacrificing, our government is sacrificing. But what responsibility do companies have for the greater good? And in response to this, the economist Milton Friedman, one of the most influential economists of all time, wrote an essay in the New York Times saying, the only, the only responsibility that a business has is to maximize its profits for its shareholders. And he says the idea that businesses have any kind of social responsibility, a phrase he puts in skeptical quote marks 27 times in this essay, is ridiculous. And so Friedman's... Friedman's um, theory was important for a few things. Number one, he said a business's responsibility was to maximize financial value. That was a new idea. And second was to do it for shareholders. So it's saying that a company is not responsible to its customers, to its community, to its employees, just its shareholders. And this really changed how corporations operated in the United States. There's all sorts of stats I show to, to demonstrate how the, the, corporate, the, the mainstream corporate strategy shifted from having big employee bases, retraining employees, employees getting raises. Uh, from 1948 to 1973, the average American salary increased by 91%. Since 1973, it has increased 9%. The entire philosophy and structure of business changed and even became a legal expectation that companies started to have. But uh, there's, a, there's a point in the 1970s where the shape and tenor of, of American capitalism and really global capitalism changed. So in the earlier era, you know, capitalism was thought to be a way to create a middle class. And instead, after that point, it became a way to create wealth. Okay. Well, that's interesting because when I researched uh, your book and, and read a little bit about it and, and I saw your thoughts, I was like, wait, isn't that, I mean, are you promoting socialism in a way, right? Because I, I felt like do your ideas and your proposal for a more generous future, does it apply specifically to the U.S.? Or can it also apply to, um, 
to a global landscape. And now that you said that, I was wondering, I mean, if we look at the US, right, and, and to what you just said, I think there are many things we can observe in the US where, for example, I think there's also recent studies about the decline of clubs. Like, I think the US historically has been a great country where almost everybody was part of multiple clubs in their community and people got together. And that's completely erased from the landscape. So do you see, like, you mostly talked about the economy now. Like, do you see a general tendency in the last 50 years, maybe through these factors, where society became more and more individualist? Yeah, I mean, there was the 1980s, like, there was a, became a big media meme in the 80s about this was the me generation. It was the most self-interested generation that had ever been. And these were people that were born right when the shift in strategy happened. And so they were hyper-individualistic in a way that they hadn't been before. I, I think America is the most extreme version of these things. I think the, the version of capitalism and society that America is practicing today is sort of a fundamentalist version of this. Um, I think in other nations, there are different permutations. I think in a lot of Europe, you have something that is much more balanced than what you see in the U.S. But yeah, I mean, the, the culture of the United States has really evolved. I mean, I've seen it in my lifetime. I felt it happen. Um, there's a, a study that I cite in the book where UCLA over the last 50 years has surveyed incoming college students around the United States every year asking them about their goals in life. And they're given a list of like 15 different things to say whether they're essential or not. And in 1970, the most essential life goal for college students was to develop a meaningful philosophy on life. 86% of students said that was essential. Um, there's one choice dealing with money to be very well off financially, to be rich. In 1970, 28% of students said being rich was essential. The most recent year this study came out, uh, in 2017, 82% of college freshmen said being rich was essential only 40% said having a philosophy on life was. So in 1970, college students were looking for a purpose, and today they know what that purpose is, it's to try to be rich. And so you can graph this year by year, how this changed. And there's like 15 different life goals in this list, and really that financial one is, is the only one that really changes to this great degree. So, you know, just it was a gradual transition, and one that, you know, kids are being born into. And, I don't think it's just greed. I think it's also that, you know, the wages of the American worker have grown 10% in the last 50 years. Like the high point for pay for the American worker for their productivity was 1973, the same year Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon came out. Uh, and so pay has grown about 10% since then for the average worker, but the cost of college has increased by 19 times. So a, so a student graduating college right now is like just suffering with debt. There's like over a I won't say the exact figure because I'll be wrong, but over half of the student debt in the United States is delinquent or in forbearance, like people can't afford to pay it. And so we have this whole structure built around the sort of promise of this American dream. And it has stopped being true. It stopped being true. And so for millennials and Generation Z right now, like they are living in a very different world than I'm Generation X or the boomers. You're seeing that sort of class generational warfare start a little bit with like the okay boomer stuff and, yeah, and yeah. all that right but it is like the world the world has dramatically changed for them and the story that they were told about what life would be and what was promised to them is just completely untrue are you worried that uh, that you will get some comments on your book from generation c members that say okay boomer thanks for writing that book no I'm, I'm i'm gen x no okay I, you're fine no the whole book <laughs> the whole book is written i mean the whole book is written um to generation z mm. it, it, it like it begins it's addressed to them and it's saying like um 
you know, the fault of my generation um, is that we thought that our institutions were strong, that we could just like audition for the real world and, you know, just do selfish things and the world would keep working the way it was supposed to. And it's not true. It's not true. We thought we could just go with the flow that the world was set and, and it's not. And so the, the power and the opportunity and the responsibility that the younger generations have is to have a plan for where we should go. Like there's all these polls showing that Generation Z millennials have very different views on the world than their previous generations. If they just go forward with like a resentment towards the status quo, that's not going to help very much. But if they have a plan for how that should evolve, like they can do it. In the same way, you know, the United States evolved from a, a society that believed in the middle class to one that just believes in wealth. It can evolve into new forms of value as well. So I'm curious about, uh, let's take a break here before we go deeper into, into the, that stuff. Um, I'm curious about your background because I think that we could be having this conversation and you could be a journalist who wrote a new book or you could be a professor of economy who wrote a new book. But you are the founder, co-founder of Kickstarter and you just wrote your first book. So how did, that, how did it come about that you decided to write a book actually? Well, I, wa I was originally a music journalist, so my first career was as a music critic, reviewing records for Pitchfork and The Village Voice, and like, that was always my dream. Um, so my first 10 years as like a professional person, that's what I did. And then Kickstarter happened. You know, I met Perry Chen, who'd had the idea for Kickstarter, met Charles Adler, the three of us started working on it. And, you know, the, the goal of Kickstarter was that all of the cultural products that existed around us were getting funded because they could be profitable for someone else. But most creative ideas don't want to be profitable, they just want to exist. And so Kickstarter was supposed to be like a separate economy where because there was no financial upside for money put into projects, that things would get funded just because people wanted them to. And that that would create a more interesting, diverse, weirder world, which I think has been true. Um, and so, you know, Kickstarter really showed me the power of changing the why behind something. Like, why should a creative project exist? Not because it's profitable, because people like it. And so by changing that why, like, things really opened up. Um, so I worked on Kickstarter full-time for a decade, um, the last three-plus years as CEO. And then in 2017, two years ago, I stepped away, uh, stepped down, and wasn't entirely sure what to do. Um, I saw that you... Uh I followed you on Twitter, and I think the first thing you did after you left Kickstarter, you worked on some, uh, on like an NBA commentator app, I did. which I thought was really interesting. But then I uh, did, I did. Yeah, I created something called Miked, which the idea was that you would, I'm a huge basketball fan, that you would watch NBA games, you would mute your television, and instead you and your friends would call the game or yeah, listen to someone else idea, call the game. Yeah, it was great. I loved it. But you know what? I, I, I considered whether do I want to go full-time on that after I left because that had just been a fun side project. And then because of Kickstarter, I know how much work it takes to make something successful. And I knew that I didn't care enough. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, lo I love Mike. I would love to use yeah. it. Mm -hmm. I think it's cool. But am I really going to be passionate every day? Am I really willing to sacrifice other parts of my life to make that work? No, I, I don't really care that much. Um, but that was, a fun, that was a fun experiment. So yeah, that was one of the things, you know, just... Being creative, I mean, part of what I felt, part of what was harder at the end of Kickstarter is just, um, you know, you're, you're making every, I'm making every decision through the filter of like this brand, this organization, this community. 
And so you're, you're constantly having to anticipate and think about what everyone else thinks and kind of what you think comes secondary to all that. And that gets exhausting. That gets exhausting, especially doing that for a long time. Um, and so when I stepped away, I, you know, I thought I was just going to like sleep for a month. And instead, I found I had like more energy than I'd had in years. And I realized it's because I got to hustle for myself. And that was, that was exciting. You know, I hadn't been able to do that in such a long time. Um, so it's funny. Yeah, I was in this like frozen position. What do I do? And uh, I just decided, you know, I've done like quarterly annual planning for the company for years. So I thought, why don't I treat myself like I'm a company? And why don't I try to plan like the next two years of my life? Why don't I go through the sorts of frameworks and models that we would do as an executive team, but like do that for myself and just see what came up? And so I did that for like a week and sketched out all these things that were really strange, but opened up all sorts of like pores I wouldn't have gotten to otherwise. I ended up coming up with like five things I could do, five potential jobs. One was doing mic'd full time. And then the following week, I, I spent a, one day, each day of that week, pretending that I had taken that job. So I pretended I was the CEO of Mike'd, and my job that day was I was just doing Mike'd, and I was being a CEO again. I spent the whole day doing that, uh, and I just tried to feel what it, you know, just see what it felt like. And um, so I tried, like, yeah, doing Mike'd. I tried imagining being a teacher, tried imagining being a journalist again. Uh, I forget what the fourth one was, but one was a book. One was to write this book. And when I spent a day pretending I was writing a book, like, I felt so excited. Like, my body clearly said, you know, this, this is the one for you. So I ended up deciding to move forward with that and created... Again, trying these forcing functions, I set a deadline by which I had to have a book contract or I would quit. When I signed that book contract, I gave myself exactly one year to write the book because I thought, like, this needs to be a job that's kicking my ass for me to, like, do my best. And so just constantly trying to, I don't know, trick myself into being the best version of myself. Because on my own, you know, I would just, like, if you, you know, if you say, if you sign a book deal, you can very easily just spend two months telling all your friends that you signed a book deal yeah. and never writing a word. Like yeah. that's very easy to do. So how, so how do I not do that if I'm like already behind? Um, so it's just things like that to try to help, yeah, help me, yeah. And so how was that year? Did you have a super strict schedule that every day from nine till 12 you write and then you do this? Yeah, it was something like that. Yeah, it'd be like, you know, it's more like, yeah, nine, nine, I'd have to take my kid to school, so like 10 to four, something like that every day. Um, There was, you know, I, I iterated to find what worked. I mean, at the beginning, I would like sit at my computer and just be like, okay, be brilliant. <laughs> and then nothing would happen. You get angry at yourself. Um, so I had to learn that I had to more like just sit down with the right, right, mind, right, right frame of mind to be gentle on myself, to um, not force it. And eventually I created a structure that worked amazingly well, which is that I would spend, it took about a month to write a chapter and I would spend three weeks just like writing on my computer. I, I had a big outline already that I'd made over the course of like a month or two, or all I did was read and make an outline. Uh, but then once I started writing, I would write on the computer for three weeks and then the fourth week of every month, I would not use my computer. I would print out everything I'd written and then I tried various things, but that what ended up working the best was I would physically cut out the sentences that I liked. And I would just create a pile of the things I liked and I would, I would lay them all over the floor of my office and just create different structures, just try to like live within the text, feel what it could be. I would spend, I would spend like a day or two just drawing 
trying to visually draw, like storyboard the chapter. Um, and all these were ways of just like loosening my mind and allowing it to see what it needed to see. Like I was always chasing a kind of feeling that I wanted to create, a sense of, I don't know if you've ever seen like an Adam Curtis film, but this sense of like seeing the world in a new way. Um, and so I always had this, I would picture it as like, there was a disco ball hanging in front of me and there was like a right way to tell whatever story I was trying to tell. But whatever that exact way was, was hidden on like the back underside of the disco ball, exactly where I couldn't see it. So my entire job was to relax enough to where I could trick it into revealing itself to me. And you would do that by just changing mediums, just, yeah, not forcing it, going for a walk, you know, just, just allowing your mind to get there. And, and it worked. So now the book is out. Yeah. And I think another thing, element of the book that I'm curious about is that I'd say you can definitely observe in 2019, there's a wave of, um, of people in tech trying to save the world, right? So we see people like Tristan Harris, for example, and the whole time well spent movement, which is basically people who work in tech, people who work in startups, you know, created things, uh, infinite scroll, etc. And suddenly now in their mid thirties and thirties are like, uh, what have we done? We need to change that. I would say, you're not part of that group exactly because as my knowledge of Kickstarter is, you know, crowdfunding is this amazing tool that I think you pioneered on the internet. And at the same time, I know that in 2015, uh, Kickstarter became a public benefit corporation, which again, I think probably can be seen historically as a step to that book already. So uh, would you say that um, you've been on this journey for a long time and, you know, Kickstarter as a tech company was one part of it, the public Benefit Corporation is another part of it, and now the book is the next part in that journey. Yeah, yeah I, I think that's true. I mean, I think, you know, if I think about the state of tech, like, I, I don't know that I think tech addiction is a problem. I'm not sure. You know, I, I, think, I think the OK Boomers are looking at Generation Z and saying, why are you on your phone all the time? What's wrong with you? And, you know, someone in Generation Z would say, I'm talking to my friends. Like, this is, this is being social today. You know, it's different, but it's not, it's not bad. It's just yeah. different. Um, so I... I'm a little, I mean, I love the work that Tristan does and he, he's amazing, but I, I'm suspicious of like how big a problem tech addiction is. What I do think is a challenge is that, you know, the promise of the web, like the John Perry Barlow, Craig Newmark promise of the web was that this is the, this is the frontier that allows us to try every, every model, every way of doing things. It's just like wide open. Whatever we can dream up, we will experiment. We will find new ways to redefine how we work together, et cetera. And I think of Kickstarter as being part of that, like what, can the, what else can we be, right? And Kickstarter is a really kind of bold experiment in that that has worked. Um, but quite quickly, we like settled on, honed in on this, you know, data extracting, ad supporting, hyper-capitalist model of the internet. And... To me, that's just like one possible storyline of the web, but we've seemed to have gotten stuck there really quickly. And you know, that, that's what to me is most discouraging, that the opportunity for people to experiment with new forms feels limited right now. There's, there's been the blockchain, but you know, even that, what did the blockchain end up being used for? Financial speculation. Yeah. You know, it didn't, like none of the promises of that have really come to pass. Um, so that, that to me is, what, is what's discouraging, that this creativity that was there is still there, hasn't really found support. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm working with a startup now called Ampled, which is a co-op. It's like a Patreon for musicians, but it's fully co-op where it's 
100% owned by the users. If you have like at least X subscribers, you have a share in the company and you're like guide how the company operates. And to me, that sort of a co-op ownership structure is kind of a holy grail for the web. Um, so I'm very, you know, I want models like that to succeed where it's just, you know, w what are the different outcomes if some of the core assumptions can change, if those whys behind it can change rather than just you raise a lot of VC money, you maximize your metrics, you go public, you cash out, and then you exploit your users as long as you can. I mean, that's kind of the playbook right yeah. now. And you pretend you're not doing that by having, you know, really nice branding and, you know, lots of world, saving the world slogans. Um, so, yeah, how do, how do we get out of that storyline and get into a different one? So let's get into the second part of your book, actually, because yeah. you mentioned in the second part of your book, you provide some more concrete examples of what we can actually do. Yeah. So what are your suggestions? Like, what can I do uh, to be more generous and to yeah. get out of that spiral? Well, I mean, I think it comes down to, I mentioned before, Bentoism, this idea of seeing our self-interest beyond just what we want right now. I think that is like, I think that is the new paradigm. A, a new way of understanding self-interest, I think, is, is the real paradigm shift that allows us to see, see things differently and allows us to conceive of new forms of value. And my favorite example of, of this practically done uh, is Adele. In 2015, Adele... The singer. The singer. Okay, yeah, yeah, not our friend Adele. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, yeah, Adele. Adele, the Adele, biggest okay. pop singer in the world. Yeah. Uh, Adele was going on tour in 2015, and when Adele goes on tour, her tickets immediately sell out, And then they go up on secondary ticketing market websites for hundreds or thousands of dollars more. Adele, you know, charges like 50 bucks a pop for her ticket because she's like a populist singer. Um, but because of the scalping, she ends up playing shows for either wealthy fans or worse, not wealthy fans who are spending more money than they can afford to see her play. Um, most artists today participate in the secondary ticketing websites. They get a cut of that bigger sale. Um, But Adele didn't want to do that. So she found a startup based in the UK called Songkick that had built an algorithm that would measure how loyal a fan was to an artist and use that to identify like the top 20 percentile of Adele fans in all these markets, especially invite them to buy tickets, putting no restrictions on whether they could resell the tickets. But the, the bet was that by maximizing for fairness and community, that it would be a way to avoid the maximizing for financial outcomes. And so it ended up that those tickets, less than 2% of them got resold, whereas for a typical Adele show, it's 10 or 20 times that many. Fans saved millions of dollars. The, the shows were still like Adele made money, just not as much money. Uh, but she was able to algorithmically, mathematically optimize for fairness, for a communal experience rather than her own financial outcome. And to me, that's an example of a new kind of value-driven choice where at the heart of it is it's, it's taking something like loyalty, which we all agree is real, but we have a hard time defining. It's sort of like an emotional value. And she's shifting it from like an emotional space to a rational space, and even all the way to like a numeric value. Um, and I think that same process can happen with a lot of other values too. I think that sustainability of our lives could be tracked in that same sort of way. I think Purpose could be identified in similar ways. I think our social cohesiveness could be identified in those kinds of ways. And so I imagine a world where instead of always maximizing for the financial outcome, we are optimizing for, sure, maybe a base level profitability so that this can keep happening. 
but the the true value you're you're optimizing for is something else. So like if you think about Kickstarter as a PBC, we are legally re- you know we're we're supposed to create value for our shareholders, but we're legally required to balance that with like our PBC charter, which is based on s- supporting the creative community, promoting creative works, things like that. And so it's this sort of dual mission, a dual mission of a financial and a non-financial goal. Um, but you know the, the challenge you get into as a leader in an organization trying to do that, or any organization, is you get into really tough 50-50 calls where there's a very clear financial outcome. There's some downsides that you can talk about, but you have a hard time quantifying. And so you end up in this place of what feels like a rational versus an emotional argument. And nine times out of 10, the rational argument's going to win. It'll only lose if it's a crisis. And so to me, the ultimate best case scenario, um, and the one that I think we will truly achieve, is that those two concerns are equal. It's on a level playing field. They're both agreed to be rational. And there's even a similar language that could be used to sort through these things. Because I don't think that society is going to get better by everyone just getting the same, having the same values. You know, I think that's like fascism in a different kind of way. But how can we elevate the values that we know are important into a language that we can all operate from, where we're all working on, on the same, yeah, same set of standards? Do you think that... Do you think this is mostly a mindset change that an individual has to do for themselves? Because I would argue, of course, these, these, exam- these examples that you mentioned are great. But I wonder, you know, you mentioned in the beginning, 45% or so of Americans can't pay their monthly checks. So if I'm an individual struggling with actually paying, uh, paying my life and my, the entire system around me is basically built on the maximization of wealth and that's all I see, that's all the media tells me, It's a noble gesture to say, well, be more generous, have different values, rationalize, you know, more for generosity. But yeah, the day-to-day struggle might make it impossible for me to actually execute on that. So what are your thoughts on that? I think it's the reverse. I actually think that people, um, you know, you, there's, there's like the Maslow's hierarchy where you must satisfy your safety and your security before you can move on to higher values. And I think safety and security really define the now me space for most people. Um, But, you know, if you, if, you, if you look at, like, the correlation between religious beliefs and income, the less money someone has, the more likely they are to be religious. And to me, this makes sense because they have a very challenging now me. The day-to-day is very hard. So they seek relief in the idea of the afterlife and eternity, this future me. And these are often people that are way more communally oriented. There's, like, the us, They're closer with families, closer with their church, things like that. Um, so they are, they are, while striving and struggling in the now me space, they're actually, I think, able to access other parts of, of their lives and to achieve a kind of balance. That person, you know, trying to make enough money to pay their bills is like absolutely the right thing to do. But I think people know how to find those other parts of their lives. I think the problem is rich people, rich people whose now me is awesome. They can just be indulgent, completely self-indulgent. The concerns of other people, the concerns of the future... You know, they don't have to worry about the future because they have enough money where they'll always be okay. But they're the ones that are hyper-indexing for now me. They are the ones that are hoarding the collective resources of everybody and keeping it for themselves. So I actually think it's, it, is the, it is the wealthy people that need to change their behavior. It is the wealthy people that need to get woke to what is really true. It's not, you know, the problem is not people struggling. The problem is people who have enough continuing to want more and creating a 
all sorts of negative footprint that they're not really accounting for. Do you think that technology could also be a solution to this problem? Giving, let's, let's put the anal analogy that crowdfunding has always existed, but what you've basically built with Kickstarter is you made it available and easy to the masses. So uh, when we now talk about this mindset change and the uh, shift of values, of course, I think you can achieve for your book, through talks, that you reach a certain amount of people that actually uh, will do that. But a technology tool, an app, a website that millions or billions of people use might do this on a much different scale. So yeah. have you thought about that? Yeah, totally, totally. I mean, I think, I, I think, you know, I think, I think technology is a neutral force, right? And it, it can be applied and used in whatever way that people want it to. Um, if I think, you know, what I was saying before about how we've gotten shoehorned into this very limited way of thinking about technology, which is the purpose of it is to extract data to sell advertising. You know, it's like the lamest, it's the lamest use of it ever. Like yeah. really, if you were to yeah. make a list of yeah. what are the dumbest ways to use the most powerful tool ever invented, I think that might be number one. Advertising. <laughs> and that's all we do it for now, right? And it's made us suspicious of data. It's made us suspicious of what it can tell us about ourselves, but I, I think that there's a lot of positive potential in that, that we feel nervous of because we're used to these, you know, unfriendly players that are exploiting us. Um, and so, you know, I think there's gonna be a, a, a justifiable suspicion, um, but I'm optimistic about what it can do. You know, I, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a technology utopian by any means, but, you know, there are certain ways that we have gotten stuck in the world and technology seems like it can be a powerful tool to, to, work, to work our way out of that if you have the right goal in mind. If the point of technology is to maximize profits and ad views, then yeah, no, I, I, don't, I don't think more of that is the answer. Um, but I think a different spirit around how we think about technology is... It can be an amazing, an amazing force. So this is the 29th interview yeah. you did on your little book tour in the past few weeks. Is there a question that no one has asked you yet about the book? Um, no, I mean, I think, I mean, the, the one, the one I was thinking that no one asked, but someone asked it the other day finally was like, what does this future look like? You know, like this could be our future. Okay. But what does that look like? Um, Cause the book I talk about, you know, I talk about how there's a, I provide a 30-year theory of change where I'd say the kind of significant shift in values and behavior along the lines of what I'm saying, like a change in belief of what our self-interest is, that changes like that happen, but they take about 30 years to happen. They take a generational turnover. doesn't mean everyone on like the 30th day just magically gets there. It's a gradual process. But by the end of that 30-year period, like new will be, what was new will, be, be, will seem normal to most people. Um, so, you know, I'm saying 2050 is the target and I'm saying generation Z millennials, you will be fully in charge in 2050. So like, this is your world. So, so have a plan about what you want to do. Um, and so to me, that world is one where financial value is, is important, but we're kind of in a post economic future where the growth of financial value is like matters, but it, we understand it's not the only thing that matters. And that's because we've identified other values to grow alongside it. It's also because the climate crisis will have created so much rampant economic destruction that the idea that the growth of financial value is what matters will seem a little bit silly if it's just disappearing so quickly. Um, and I think ultimately this results in like different kinds of work. Um, to me, like the real, the beauty, the purpose of money, of financial value is to be invested in non-financial value. 
Today, rich people want to put their money into things that will produce a good financial return. The point of money is to make more money. This is absurd. This is yeah. absurd. The point of money should be to create value for ourselves. And so to me, a job of the future is social workers being a, a job that's, that's highly respected. The idea of creating social cohesiveness is something that we all agree is incredibly important and people are well-trained and a lot of people do that. It could be that 50 million people are planting trees every day. And that we, we decide, you know what, that is the single best use of our financial resources, is to fund that. And yes, we're not going to see a financial outcome of that, but we will see a, an outcome in sustainability and, you know, the quality of our food, all these other things. But that we will break free of this idea that the only purpose of money is to make more money. And I think once we get over that, like, the sky's the limit. Um, and, I, and I'm like extra, just extraordinarily optimistic about what we could do. Because if you look at what we've created in the pursuit of financial growth, it's amazing. Like, it's truly amazing. Like in a biblical phrase, like it's awesome. Um, and so let's imagine that with, a, with a, a wider view of success and not just the singular idea of success. Um, and so I, I, I truly think that's going to happen. And I think it's going to feel super normal. And I think the idea that someone like me 30 years ago was making this argument is going to seem ridiculous. It's like, why did anyone ever have to say that? Like, this is, isn't this the most obvious thing in the world? And I, I, think that, I, think that's, I think that's already happening. When someone listens to this conversation or reads your book and is inspired and wants to do something, is there a way they can engage with you or interact with you? Is there something they can join to find resources? Yeah, so I, I made a site um, with a friend of mine who I made the creative independent with, but I made a site called bentoism.org bentoism.org. Um, it's very trippy. It's cool. And it's a guide to self-coherence. It's a guide to self-coherence. It's a very simple slideshow that walks you through the philosophy and then guides you through the process of building your bento, teaches you how to make decisions with it. And, um, and what I've been doing over the past six months is teaching workshops, teaching people how to do this and creating collective experiences of people uh, building bentos together. And, uh, and so that would be the next step. So that's there for people to go and check out now. People are People are already doing it to a far greater degree than I ever expected. I think 700 people have gone through it this week. You know, I was like, maybe seven people will do this. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, my, my intention is not just to put an idea out there. My intention is to follow through and, and to try to help people take the next step. And so I created that site as, the ne as that. Um, and this is ultimately, this is a movement that will need a lot of different kinds of people. You know, my brain can conjugate these ideas in certain ways, but, you know, how would a data analyst think about these questions? How would a public policy person think about these questions? Like, these are things I, you know, I'm not as skilled at. And so one of my hopes is that those people come out of the woodwork and say, hey, I connect with what you're saying. I actually know how to do some of the things that I think might be necessary. Can I get involved? And I would say, yeah. You know, so I, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm really trying to, extend an open hand and try to provide a sense of what those next steps are. Because I, there's a hunger, there's a widespread hunger for a different way of thinking about where we are and about where we could go. And I think there's been a lack of imagination about what that could be other than the attitude of like, well, screw this. We just want to flip the table over, right? But what are we supposed to do instead? And so this is, you know, this is just one person's proposal for what that could be. Beautiful. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, Yancy, for sitting down with me to talk about your book. If you, dear listener, are interested in hearing more stories about how to bring people together today and in the future, I really recommend you to subscribe to this podcast. It's obviously really interesting, and we have new guests and episodes coming out every week. 
or subscribe to our newsletter at CoreMatter.com. We send out a new one every month with a roundup of updates and inspiration from the CoreMatter network. That's it for today. Over and out. Take care of yourself and take care of others.